Well, my favorite movie of all time is a film called Hoosiers. Every basketball fan has watched this at least a few times. Every sports fan has seen this at least once, and hopefully everyone else will give it a try. Give it a try. Now, it's a fictionalized story based on true events, and it's set in 1951 in a small town in Indiana. It's a rural town. The longtime basketball coach has died, and the high school principal decides to bring in one of his buddies from college, Norman Dale. As is the case in many small towns, new people are often looked at as outsiders, and Coach Dale doesn't do things to help his own cause. He practices without a basketball. He focuses on endurance and defense. He, he, he brings the town drunk to be an assistant as long as he stays sober. Initially, his team doesn't perform well. And the coach suffers the, the wrath of the townspeople. Initially, even some of the players quit the team because they can't seem to understand Coach Dale's methods. For the first half of the season, the, the team is in chaos, and, and the coach's temper comes out during games, and he's ejected multiple times. It seems as if Norman Dale is the only one who trusts in Norman Dale. Even his old college buddy, the, the high school principal who was serving as an assistant coach, uh, looks over at Coach Dale during a game after uh, the coach makes a, a decision that shocked the whole, stadium, uh, the whole arena, and he says this, quote, I'm trying hard to believe you know what you're doing. All the controversy came to a head when the town gathered one night to vote the coach out. But the players figured out that the coach knew what he was doing. The townspeople, even his harshest critics, came to see that Coach Dale knew basketball, and he knew how to coach. The team improved, ultimately leading to the, the state championship game, and, and as, as the team is in the locker room before the game began, uh, the coach goes over the last-minute preparations, and he, he writes the opponent's names down on a chalkboard. And the players see, these guys are huge. These guys are, are scoring lots of points. How, how are we going to play against these guys? And, and during the, the first part of the basketball game, the, the other team, who, who was larger, faster, stronger, better players, were dominating. And the coach calls timeout, and the players come and sit on the bench, and the, the players said, these guys are too good for us. I can't guard these guys. And the coach, knowing what to say, the strategy's out the window at this point, the coach says, maybe they were right about us. Maybe we don't belong here. And with that, the players turned it on. And, and they played harder, and the game was still difficult, and they ended up winning on a last-second shot. I ruined the movie for you, but it's still a good movie to watch. Now, I've seen this movie at least 100 times during the basketball season in high school. I watched it almost every day. I'm sharing this because the, the town and the players and, and everyone around Coach Dale initially stood against him. They didn't know how to trust the coach. The players had to do this first. They, they didn't understand some of his methods, but then they realized that a man in his 50s who studied the game, who's been around basketball his entire life, knows a little more than a 17 or 18-year-old kid. 
when it seemed like it was too hard for the players, they figured out that they had to trust the coach. Now, I've said this for a long time, sports uh, is, is often a metaphor for life, that, that there are so many things that kids can learn by playing sports about life in general. We're talking the, kind of the typical stuff, teamwork, following instructions, kind of working all the way through to the end. But in terms of our lives, we are often in positions to trust God when we can't see what he's doing. That we don't understand his methods. We don't understand why God does what he does. And it seems sometimes as if nothing makes sense to us. But what do we see all throughout the Bible? That even when the deck is stacked against us, God still preserves us. This is the story at work in Genesis, and, and I'd argue that this is one of the main themes of all of Scripture, is that when things seem too difficult for us, when it seems like God has turned his back on us, we must remember, because we're always shown this, that God still preserves us, that God still loves us, and that God still cares for us. Well, here in Genesis 39, we're seeing this played out, aren't we? Genesis 38 was an excursion from the story of Joseph. Genesis 37 leaves off where Genesis 39 picks up. Now, if you remember, Joseph's brothers hated him. They initially wanted to kill him, so they threw him into a pit. They, they ate dinner while he was screaming help for help. And then they decided, well, it would be better for us because we can make a few bucks and we don't have his blood on our hands, that we'll just sell him into slavery. We'll, we'll sell him to these, these people going by. They'll take him into Egypt, and we'll never hear from our brother ever again. Once Joseph was on the road to Egypt, his brothers were certain that they would never see him again. They thought it was done, so they, they took his robe, and they dipped it in blood, and they gave it to their father and said, See, a wild animal has devoured your son. They probably figured that he would go to Egypt, Joseph would, and that he would work in the fields or he would be a slave and he would work to death. But the man who ultimately buys Joseph is a man named Potiphar. He's not just a normal guy. He, the name Potiphar means belonging to the sun. This is similar to the, the name he whom Ra has given, and Ra is, is kind of a, a connected to the sun god in Egypt. And, and if you look at pictures of Ra, you'll often see um, a, a son in the background. So this was like the, the god of gods in Egypt. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with this text except for this fact. Potiphar was an Egyptian's Egyptian. In, in, in American terms, Potiphar would be the guy that has a giant flagpole in his front yard, a, a, a guy who served in the military, a, a guy who, who named his kids after famous Americans. This is like, he's, he's waving that Egyptian flag, isn't he? And, and it even says that, that Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh. It says he was the captain of the guard, meaning that he was the kind of the chief of police, or maybe better yet, the head of the secret service for Pharaoh. All this shows that he was a powerful person. He wasn't just a dude. He wasn't just a farmer. He wasn't just some guy. He wasn't a bureaucrat. This is a guy who had Pharaoh's ear. This is 
one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt. And all of this matters because the rest of the chapter would not have happened to Joseph if Potiphar wasn't a powerful man because the accusation carried more weight because it came from him. And see, Joseph knew the power that he was up against. A foreign slave on the lowest rung of the ladder, Joseph had no power. He was on the lowest of the low. He was a 17-year-old kid when he got to Egypt. He had nothing. Now, again, recall what Joseph has been through to this point. He was his father's son, and he did everything that a favorite child will do, specifically make it known to all of the other kids that they are the favorite. This favored status made him an enemy of his brother, so they beat him, they threw him into a pit. He, he likely believed that he was going to die in that pit. Visions of his beloved father that he would never see again came running through his mind, and, and his brother stripped him of the one thing that he could remember his father by, is that coat. This would have brought on incredible anxiety, and the, the one thing that he had to remember was gone. And so his brothers sell him into slavery. Now, Joseph didn't know that this was coming. As he was dropped and into the pit, he likely thought he was going to die there. He was just a teenager, so he didn't have all the wisdom to, to see the warning signs of his brothers. And as he is lifted out of the pit, there's a taste of hope. He can see the surroundings. He, he, can, he can finally see everything. And it feels a little like freedom to him. But all of that hope is gone when he's shackled and taken at least 100 miles away into Egypt. Whatever hope he had was vanished as he went into deeper into Egypt knowing that all of his dreams for the future were over. Now, what would you feel like here? That as a 17-year-old, you were treated as the favorite child because you were the favorite child. Then you thought you were going to die by, you were going to be beaten to death, and they threw your body into a pit. So you're at the lowest. And then as you're coming out of the pit, you feel some hope coming back. Well, maybe my brothers changed their minds. Uh, maybe something changed in their hearts that they're going to let me go. All of that hope is dashed. Sold into slavery, he's, he's taken to a for, foreign land. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking through my own life, and I'm thinking through so many of your lives, that, that you connect with Joseph. Joseph. That you feel like your life is a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. And some of you feel like the minute that you get some, some breathing room, the minute that you get lifted out of that pit, you're dropped back down. There's hope for you. Because there's hope for Joseph. I want to tell you that your pain is valid. That pain and suffering is relative. So if you say that you're suffering, well, you're suffering. If you say that you're in pain, you're in pain. If you say that you're miserable, well, then you're miserable. But I, I, I want you to connect with Joseph more than just his suffering. 
Because at some point in our lives, we're all going to suffer. We, we all have different levels of suffering, and, and some people have a better life, easier life than others, but, but at some point, we all suffer. And I want you to see what God is doing in the life of Joseph here. Joseph had absolutely no way of knowing exactly what was going to happen. We, we know the story because we can read it. He didn't have this. He, he didn't realize that all of these difficulties that he was facing, it was going to be used for God's glory. All we can see from Joseph right now is that he's suffering and that he's gone from the mountaintop to the bottom. And the sad thing is, is that he's going to go back up again and he's going to be back down at the bottom again. Again, some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what it's like to be high and then low and then high again and then low again. You, you know what this is feeling like. You're connecting with Joseph here. But look at verse 2. That even though Joseph's trials are not over yet, there is some light breaking through. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. There is no way that Joseph had any control over this. He worked hard, sure, there's merit to that. But there's no guarantee that hard work will ever bring success, at least worldly, financial success to you. Joseph worked hard, but he was still a slave. He had no freedom to, to leave. He, he couldn't do what he wanted. Everything that he did was regulated. When someone is a slave, whether it's in the Bible, centuries in the United States, or trafficking today, when someone is a slave, by definition, their freedom is limited or eliminated. Some may read Genesis 39 and think, well, wait, Joseph worked hard, so God rewarded him. And to that I'd say, again, remember, he is a slave. Millions upon millions of people who have been enslaved all across the world could say, well, I've worked hard too. I was never rewarded. Even in the history of the United States, that there were many, many Christian slaves, slaves that came to know Christ in their slavery or back in Africa, and they would say, well, I faithfully follow the Lord. I served him. And yet every generation that's ever set foot on this country has been enslaved. And, and so you could go back through history and see that, that just simply hard work is not going to bring worldly success. So why was Joseph... Joseph successful then? Simply put, because that's what God wanted. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Joseph was successful because this was part of God's plan. God wanted it, and it happened. Again, I want you to keep this in your mind as you suffer because if God is in control, if God is sovereign, God, that means God is sovereign over your suffering. We have a, a tendency in our minds to think that, well, God's here, but when I'm suffering, God kind of just kind of pushes away and lets us stay by ourselves. 
That, that, that our suffering come, somehow happens outside of the, 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 the vision of God, that, that, it, that it happens outside of his view, and that can't be further from the truth because we're seeing here in this passage that God is orchestrating things to happen. God is allowing all of these bad things to happen to Joseph because it serves a much, much bigger purpose. Joseph probably was like us, limited view. He, he saw what was in front of him, not the 30,000-foot view. Look at verses 4 through 6, where God chooses to bless Potiphar for Joseph's sake. Listen, so Joseph found favor in his sight, in Potiphar's sight, and attended him. And he made him an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Literally, Joseph made Potiphar's life a life of ease. The only thing Potiphar worried about was the food that he ate. He made Joseph the overseer of his house and put him in charge of everything that he had. Now, again, remember, Joseph is still a slave. He was property of Potiphar. He was a teenager when he arrived in Egypt, and he's grown up into manhood in bondage. But God still has a plan. And up till now, it seems like Joseph's fortunes have changed. Again, he was living well, then in the pit. Hope, pit. And now he's in charge He's a young man who's in charge of, of all of the land, of all of the property owned by Potiphar. In total, Joseph belonged to Potiphar for 11 years. He was 17 when he came. And now he's somewhere in his mid to late 20s. The interesting thing to know here is that the average age of an Egyptian male at this time was only about 25 years old. Because we had so many that, that, that people would die, in, infant, uh, die in, in, in infancy as a baby because of obviously no modern medicine and no modern health care. So Joseph has already outlived most of the people or the average age. And so it's safe to say that throughout his short life compared to us today, He's gone from lows to highs and back and forth. And the high would come with his authority, and, uh, but here's the, the concern. At this point now in Joseph's life, he, he, he's living fairly well. He's probably eating well. He's got access to Potiphar, who has access to Pharaoh. He, he's well known, but there's a danger coming. Look at verses 7 through 10. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. 
Potiphar's wife was a very forward woman. Don't know the background, don't know the story. Some have speculated that maybe Potiphar was a eunuch or some form of that, and, and so maybe that's why she was interested. Quite frankly, this is not anything that doesn't happen today either. That she saw someone who was attractive and said, I want that. So what does Joseph do? Well, I sure hope that this doesn't happen to you. I, I hope that you're never faced with the same situation, but the reality is that each and every one of us are faced with temptations daily. It doesn't have to be our boss's wife. It doesn't have to be uh, uh, something immoral in, in that sense, but the reality is that we all face temptations. And I want to show you, Joseph is not the hero here, Jesus is, but I want to show you how Joseph faces these temptations. He does a really good job. The first thing that he does is he says, this is a sin against God. I, I, I can't do this because this is a sin against God. Notice he doesn't say, hey, lady, I'm handsome. I'm not attracted to you. There's nothing happening here. Beat it. He doesn't say that. He says, I can't do this because it is a sin. One of the first steps to completely giving in to sin is to ignore what God says about it. Those who have given up on the faith often begin with denying certain truths of Scripture, particularly in God's standard for how we are to live. Joseph could have done what others have said to me over the years, and I've heard this from men who have left their wives. Well, wait, doesn't God just want me to be happy? Unfortunately, I've heard that too many times to count. So many well-known Christian celebrities would do well to follow Joseph's example. Remember that God is holy and that he demands his people live, in a, live lives that honor him. Now, so not only does he say, I can't do this because it would dishonor, it would be a sin against God, I can't do it because it would also be a sin against your husband. He acknowledges that sinning with, uh, sinning with Potiphar's wife would be harming to her husband. Potiphar's given him a, a life. He's given him a, a chance to rise the ranks. He, he's given him comfort that he wouldn't have had otherwise. And he wouldn't betray that trust. See, our sin doesn't just involve ourselves. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen as a pastor someone sin like this and they think that it's just between them and their spouse, which can't be further from the truth. Your sin and my sin, specifically in terms of this, it always, always cracks the foundations. And it comes to a point where I've seen churches fight over this. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm believing this person. No, I'm believing this person. And the church ends up splitting over it. Your sin and my sin doesn't just affect us. And Joseph sees this. He says, look, I can give in to my temptation. You can give in to your temptation. No one will ever know. It'll be hidden between the two of us, and we can do this as long as we want. He didn't say that. Joseph says, no. 
I've got to remember what God says, and I've got to honor the man who made me who I am right now. So Joseph resists Potiphar's wife every time. She doesn't go away. Sin doesn't go away. Verse 10 says that she spoke to Joseph every day, trying to get him to give in. Isn't this the exact same thing that the sin, whatever sin may kind of follow you around, isn't that what you feel like? Every single day you're fighting, you're battling, you're trying to push that thing as far away from you as you can. Lust, greed, envy, anger, all of those things you say, I, I recognize what I am and I'm trying to fight it, but every time I take two steps forward, it's right behind me. Potiphar's wife every day, day after day. And Joseph resists. What can he do, though? He's still a slave. He can't go up to Potiphar and say, hey, man, get your wife to, 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 to chill out. Calm down. He's still owned by this man. So he does what so many victims do when they're abused. They do everything they can to just stay away, to, to survive without making the abuse worse. But one day he went into, his, into the house to work, and he was found alone with Potiphar's wife. After all of the pressure, he has a chance to sin. No one will ever know. And Potiphar's wife grabs his shirt or his clothes and holds on to it. And she says, here's what I expect. Today's the day. Joseph resisted. There, there's no record of what he says. He may not have said anything. But Scripture says he fled out of the house. And it's not just, hey, excuse me, let me take this jacket. No, I mean, he ran out of the house. We're happy that he made it out of a bad situation. But what's about to happen to him shows that God still works when our lives are turned upside down. Because at this moment, he, he's got to be thinking, what, what am I going to do now? I, I've risen the ranks. I've done everything that was asked and more. I've got power. I've got authority. Yeah, I'm still a slave, but, I, but I, I've got a better life than most of those slaves do. And this is going to be gone. This woman's not going to stop. She's probably going to tell people. Look at verse 13 through 18. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her, his master came home. She told him the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. The men of the house came in, said, oh, we're, this is not good. And so they run and get Potiphar and they, they bring Potiphar back and, and his wife lies to him about what happened accusing Joseph of forcing himself on her, when in fact it was her that was the abuser. 
as I was reading this story, there was a, a point in history that I, I kept coming back to, um, and it was the story of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a, a 14-year-old uh, African-American boy who was accused of flirting with a 21-year-old white woman in Mississippi in 1955. Till was from Chicago, so he, he probably he was visiting relatives in Mississippi, so he probably wasn't well-versed in the, the racist, unwritten codes of behavior for black men interacting with white women. A few nights after the incident, Till was captured, beaten, mutilated, shot in the head, and sunk in the river. Not long after the murder, an all-white jury found the two men, the husband and the brother of the woman, they found them not guilty. Till was victimized and lost his life, and and certainly there are no excuses for what happened, and, and the jury did not do their job. But Till's murder galvanized the civil rights movement. His name will always be remembered for pushing forward laws that sought to create a society where every human being was valued and had worth. See, Joseph, like Till, was innocent. Emmett Till didn't do anything wrong, certainly nothing worthy of murder. Joseph didn't deserve to be accused of something he didn't do either. Both Till and Joseph were the victims in their respective situations, and neither of them had the power to get themselves out. In other words, the deck was stacked against them both. See, when Potiphar heard his wife, he got angry. He took Joseph and threw him into prison. Of course, Joseph would have denied this and saying, he would have pled with Potiphar, hey, look, I did not do this. You've got to believe me. But what could he do? Even in the United States where the legal system is supposed to correct wrongs, people like Emmett Till have been murdered and their killers have gotten away. The system favored those who were in power and the system here favored those who were in power as well. And Joseph was a slave. He was an immigrant. He may have worked his way to the top, but he was still a slave and an immigrant. He had no rights or protections enjoyed by the other Egyptians. He was guilty, and everyone around him just knew for certain he was guilty. Joseph found himself in another pit. He's gone from the brutalized victim of his brother's rage to becoming a slave, working his way to enjoy some of life, and now he's a prisoner again. Psalm 105 says this about Joseph. It says that Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters. Not feathers, but fetters. It's uh, chains, uh, uh, hooks around his feet. His neck was put in a collar of iron. He was in a prison cell with chains around his ankles and chains around his neck. And you can... Imagine the other prisoners, if there were any, saying to Joseph, hey man, just give up. Kind of like what happened with Job. Blame God for this. Just give up. You have no hope. Once you came through that cell door, all hope is gone. You have none left. And if anybody had an opportunity or a reason to abandon hope, it was Joseph. God, you took me out of my father's house and you brought me into slavery. God, I trusted you. 
You raised me up to a high position and I trusted you. You allowed me to face temptation and I was faithful. God, I trusted you. And now this, now you let me rot in prison? God, I trusted you. Where are you? And so many of you right now feel like you're at the bottom. You've likely asked God these same questions. Like Joseph, you can't see why God is allowing you to suffer so much, why, why God is giving you so much pain and, and such a heavy burden to carry. You've been faithful, and let's be honest, and this is, church is not a place for us to pretend. Church is a place for us to be honest. You say, I've been faithful, and it seems like I've got nothing to show for it. I've honored God, and, and, and what, what have I gotten in return? Yes, I know, you know, by and by in the sky and all that stuff. I get that. I, I know that that's coming, but what about now? What about here? Doesn't God hear my pleas? Doesn't God hear my cries? Well, I want you to consider God's unending love for Joseph. Look at verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. But the Lord was with Joseph. I kind of want to write that on your mirror, put it as your background on your phone, and you can, you can remove the name Joseph and you can still apply it to you. If you're a child of God, the Lord is still with you. You may not rise the ranks like Joseph did. This is not a, a normative story for the Christian. But the Lord is still with you. We know that Joseph's story doesn't end in prison, but even if it did, even if this was the end of Joseph's story, the Lord was still with him. The Lord is with you. We all need to be reminded of this. Remember, your standing with God is not based on your experiences. It's not based on what you've done. It's not based on what's happening to you. It's solely based on the goodness of God in your life. The Lord is with you. And if you believe that God is good, you've got to believe that God keeps his word. And again, let's be honest. Because I struggle with this sometimes. I can believe you guys because I can see you, right? I, 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 can, I can reach my hand out and I can touch you. I, I can do those things that I, I know that you're real. I know that you exist. It is difficult sometimes to trust in a God that you can't see. Now, our religiousness or re religiosity would say, well, no, that's not true. I always believe in God. No, we've all had doubts. We've all had questions. We're putting our hope and our trust in a book that was written thousands of years ago about someone who we cannot see. It's difficult to trust in a God that operates in a way that's different from how you and I would. It's difficult to trust in a God sometimes that seems silent in your most difficult moments. 
but does the Bible say that God still heard Joseph? Was God still working things out while Joseph was in prison? Did God forget his promise to Joseph and all those who came before him? God heard and saw it all. God never once turned his back on Joseph. And see, we know this because we have the completed story. We can read the entirety of the book of Genesis and see how Joseph's life worked out, that God was with him at every step. But what about us? How do we find hope in the middle of suffering? We can't see the end of our story because it hasn't happened yet. So what do we do? We remember the promises that God has made. We we remember that God will not and cannot break those promises. He is faithful and true. We remember that Jesus will one day return and make an end of all evil and suffering. We remember that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We remember that even when the deck is stacked against us, God still preserves us. Would you pray with me?